We're going to continue on with our <clears throat> study of Daniel. And so we're in the fifth chapter of Daniel. So if you have the word with you, if you have your device or a Bible, the Bibles are in front of you in your pews, or maybe you brought one from home, uh, go ahead and turn there. I know it's in your notes, but it's just something about turning into God's word. That's just so, so blessing. So today in our scripture, we're going to find a new king um, that once again is going to be using Daniel to interpret something for him, interpret a message for him. Um, if Wi-Fi existed 2,500 years ago, uh, this king probably would have just Googled this and figured out what this was. And just for kicks, uh, this morning I Googled this question, what is the meaning of life? And Google gave me 15 billion answers. Google also gave, did all that in a third of a second to bring back 15 billion answers on that. Uh, I thank the Lord that we get to just talk to God and not have to talk to Google. Amen? So, um, so um, as you're finding Daniel 5, there's some things here I just want to explain before we start reading the scripture this morning. About 20 years or so have passed since the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 5, but a lot of things have happened. There have been several kings between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar is the king that we talked about for four chapters, and he is gone, and the current king now is Belshazzar. Historians are kind of in disagreement of how many kings and what kings were in between these two. And, but there's something to note here. Um, the new king's name is Belshazzar. But remember that the Babylonians gave Daniel a different name and his name is Belteshazzar. And so if there's a T-E, a T in the middle of that word, we're referring to Daniel not the king. Um, another thing to note is that Nebuchadnezzar in this scripture is going to be referred to as Belshazzar's father. But that wasn't literally the case. The word father in that time was kind of used for anybody that was an ancestor and most likely a grandfather or something like that. There's also a woman in this scene that's going to be uh, referred to as the queen but she is not the king's wife. Uh, she was probably his father's wife, his mom, or maybe even uh, his grandfather's wife. Maybe she was grandma. And so we're going to get into Daniel chapter 5. So let's start at verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's pause there for a moment. This was a, an act of outright 
brazenness on the part of King Belshazzar, uh, this new king had an absolute contempt for, for anybody in any other situation. He really didn't care about anybody except himself. Historians tell us that during this banquet, there was actually a war going on. Um, the enemy had already captured his father, and at the exact moment of this party that he was throwing, the enemy was outside of the city walls trying to get in. So Belshazzar was holding this great feast at the very moment that his city was under siege. His father is in captivity already for several months. And so this king has no respect for, for his father. He has no respect for his enemy. He certainly doesn't have any respect for the one true God. Because he had brought all of these stolen articles that were taken from the temple of God, our God, and they started a party with them. And they were drinking from them. Anybody think this is going to go well for him? No, it's not. So let's read on. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. If you've ever heard that phrase, the writing is on the wall, this is where that saying came from. Uh, so there in the middle of this royal party, a human hand appeared and started writing words on the wall. And it scared the king to death. He's shaking in his boots. His fear has overcome him. He might have even peed his pants a little bit. We don't know. But he's, he's frightened, right? The king is watching in utter fear as this disembodied spirit hand starts writing words on the palace wall. And we find this king, so, who was even more uh, shameless than his ancestors, was brought to his knees by God immediately. Our scared-to-death king calls for his advisors, and he asks, tell me what this writing means. Tell me what these words mean. I'll make you royalty. I'm going to make you rich. I'll give you power. You're going to be rewarded beyond your imagination. Just tell me what that hand wrote on the wall. And just like all the advisors before, they were silent. They had no answer for him. And this didn't help the king. They didn't, couldn't calm his nerves, and he became even more afraid. So let's skip down to verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a king mind and knowledge and understanding. And also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. And he will tell you what the writing means. Now, this queen, remember, uh, is not Belshazzar's wife. Uh, this, this queen is more likely his mom or perhaps his grandmother. And so verse 3 tells us 
that Daniel or that Belshazzar was having this party with his wives and his concubines. Verse 10 tells us that the queen was outside of the banquet hall and could hear the voices of the king. Now, this should give us some insight into the character of this, this king here. Whatever is going on inside that banquet hall, they're doing it with mom right outside the doors. Or worse, grandma is listening in to what's going on inside. And so she came in and she's trying to calm the king down and reassure him because she believed that Daniel could do what all of the rest of those advisors could not do. Grandma knows best, right? So let's go on. All the grandmas said, right, yes, that's right. <laughs> Verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel? One of the exiles, my father, the king brought from Judah. Remember, so he's not calling him a representative of God. He's not mentioning God at all, the most high God. He's not calling Daniel a prophet. Daniel is just one of the exiles. 14, I've heard that the spirit of the gods, plural, not singular. He doesn't get it yet. I hear that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligent, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing, to tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. And now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. And if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in, in purple and have a gold chain around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar calls in Daniel, and he says, Daniel, help me out here. I need you to read these words. I need you to interpret what's on the wall. Um, tell me what those mean, and I will make you rich in your old age. Daniel is probably about 80 years old at this time. He said, Daniel, I'll make you powerful. I'll give you whatever you want. Just don't embarrass me in front of grandma, right? Okay. So verse 17, and Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And so Daniel is very humble about this entire thing, just like he was, just like he was with Nebuchadnezzar years before. And Daniel told the king that he didn't need his rewards. He's just going to interpret for him. Verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant... Hardened with pride, he was deposed his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until, until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all nations on earth and sets Sets over them anyone he wishes. 
So it's been 20 years since Daniel was with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, but Daniel is still mindful of the story and what has gone on. He concludes, he, uh, verse 22, he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, has not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And you had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription on the wall, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and will be given to the Medes and the Persians. At that, Belshazzar's command, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, that very night, the king of the Babylonians was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It was Daniel's turn to be brazen, but in a godly way. And and so Daniel told Belshazzar that the the king had weighed him on these heavenly scales and found him wanting, that his kingdom is going to be coming to an end. Um, Being weighed on scales and found wanting doesn't mean that his diet was going well. It meant that his character is lacking. It meant that his obedience was shameful. And on that very night, his kingdom is going to be handed over to his enemies. And even though Belshazzar, this king, held a banquet, really laughing in in the face of the people that were outside surrounding his city, at that very moment, God showed him how weak he really was. It's almost like God is saying, do you really want to mock me? Go ahead. We're going to see who's going to win this battle. And history tells us that that attacking army came through the city gate that very night. They came into that banquet hall. They walked straight to Belshazzar and killed him. Church, there's a lesson in this conversation between Daniel and Belshazzar. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. Number one, society is will try. Society will try to sideline God's people. We shouldn't be surprised, uh, especially in our society today, when God's people are sidelined by a culture, sidelined by a society that is sure that our church and our God is irrelevant and doesn't have any truth for them because they believe their own truth. Last week, we spoke about boldly proclaiming the truth, but keeping, keep in mind in our post-Christian society, 
most people don't want to hear the church's opinion. Uh, they don't want to hear the church's insight. And, and so back then, the same thing is happening. Daniel has been sidelined. And the current king has no place for him. Nobody wanted him around anymore. He's still an advisor to the king, but he's not been invited to the palace. And he's been sidelined. He's been forgotten about. He's been ignored by the heart of the culture and the heart of the government. And it was obvious that this king had no clue who Daniel was. Daniel had been sidelined, and his advice was seen as it wasn't needed anymore. It wasn't relevant until things got bad. When things got scary, they called upon him. And so we find Daniel waiting for his opportunity. The king has been weighed and been found wanting, but not Daniel. Daniel has this lesson for us that amid a changing culture, as an exile in, in this foreign land, write this down, number two, we need, Daniel needed to remain faithful. We are in this post-Christian society where even though we may seem like we're sidelined, we need to remain faithful to the one true God. And so we find Daniel in this story, he didn't change in order to be uh, acceptable. He didn't beg to get into the palace. He didn't change his way so the king would invite him. The winds of change did not move him. The winds of change should not move God's servants today. Because of our obedience and our faithfulness to the Lord, we may experience the same sidelining that Daniel did. We, we may be sidelined and then only to be remembered for society to mock us and who we follow. But when things get bad, and they will, or maybe they already are, you watch, and I promise you this is going to happen, and I hope it happens in my lifetime, but in a time of crisis, we won't be surprised when society welcomes us back. And in the process, we may even be offered the world. And we see this all the time. Whenever there's a natural disaster, who shows up? Who, who are they waiting for to show up? The church. All the time. Um, are we the only ones to show up? No, we're not. But for the most part, those who serve the Lord also serve their fellow man. I've been on a mission trip down to uh, Louisiana uh, once and after Katrina. And when that crisis was there, it was the church that society looked for. It's the church that they came running back to and asking for help, looking for an answer. And I'm not trying to, to preach doom and gloom, but I, I can see the writing on the wall. I don't see things getting better and when society reaches a certain point, when, when culture has bent to the pressure of change, when our culture, when our society is about ready to snap, you watch, their deaf ear to the good news will suddenly turn towards the truth. And that's our opportunity. I have friends in Rwanda as missionaries. I, I spoke to them, they were serving there about 15 years ago. Uh, Rwanda is a poor country. Maybe you know its history. It had been ravaged by this bloody civil war. Things were bad. 
uh, the people in charge were just pure, pure evil. But in the midst of such a, this evil that was raising his head, the response in this country, the response in Central Africa was a revival and a movement of the Holy Spirit across the entire land. It was incredible what was happening in the movement of the church. And I was talking to them and uh, talking to them about this revival of Christianity in Africa. And I said, I can't wait for this revival to happen in America. Their response, Brian, I'm afraid to think of what might have to happen for America to turn itself back to God. Mm. But society's call upon the church will happen again. They will seek the truth. Because God is not going to be silenced and sidelined forever. It's not going to happen. And his people need to be faithful to him until this happens. Society, the world doesn't even know that what they offer, what they, could, what they seem to offer is trash compared to the gifts of following the most high king. It's nothing compared to what we get from our one true God. And remember verse 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to somebody else. But I'll tell you what the words mean. And so lesson number three, not all that glitters is gold. See, Daniel is just left very unimpressed by the king uh, what this powerful and, and impressive ruler uh, in the world's eyes is offering meant nothing to him. Why? Because he knows what the writing on the wall means. He knows that Belshazzar, for all of his popularity and status and wealth, is facing judgment that very night for ignoring God. And all those things are meaningless, all those riches, all those power, and all that kind of stuff is meaningless in God's kingdom. And he knows that in this Babylonian society, we know in our post-Christian society that they have nothing to offer that a follower of God really needs. We don't need fame or riches or power because we have God. And Daniel knows that, and by the end of the night, he knows that only one of them is going to remain alive. But what did he do? How did he respond to this king? Just like with the previous king, he tells him the truth. He offers this king, I think in these words, there's a chance for the king to change. And he says, oh, king, this has happened before, and you know the story. You know what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? King, I'm afraid that the enemy is knocking on your door. The enemy is about ready to come in. And if you keep ignoring the warnings, you're going to be destroyed. Not by God's hand, but because you have allowed your enemy to come inside and destroy you. And I think that Daniel once again had compassion on this king. Otherwise, why would he even have given him the warning in the first place? He wanted him to know that there's a chance. He's telling him there's still time. Folks, the problem isn't the enemy trying to get inside. That's always going to happen. He will always try to, to destroy us. The bigger problem is that we, through sin, are ignoring God. 
The bigger problem is that we have uh, left the gate to our hearts wide open for him to come inside. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what Christ did for us? What he did on that cross for us? Have we forgotten the power of the Holy Spirit? Not only to, uh, to offer that forgiveness for us, but offer us the power to be free from sin. That's what the Holy Spirit can do for us. Church, it doesn't concern me. I don't care what society is doing as much as it concerns me that we who know the truth still flirt with sin and we leave the gate wide open for the enemy. See, our enemy is smart. He's going to figure out a way to, to get his foot inside and he knows where the gaps are in our faith. And last week I challenged you to be bold, to be a bold ambassador for Jesus to the lost and to the broken. And this week I speak directly to anyone that's here that's a follower of Jesus. And I ask you, have you left the gate open? Because he's there. And he started laying siege on you the moment you started to follow Jesus. He's been there. And he's been seeking an opportunity to get into your life to destroy you. It was about 18 years ago. I had an opportunity um, with our district to travel to Africa. And we spent uh, about 10 days there or, or so. And part of that trip was to go on a safari. If you ever, ever have the chance to go on a safari, you need to take it. It will change your life. But during our trip, we saw lions early in the morning eating their breakfast. It was some sort of animal. We were so, we were so close to this pride of lions that we could hear the bones crunch in their mouth. It was awesome. <laughs> our guide explained to us that it's the female lions, it's the lioness. They're the ones that do the hunting for the most part. And the big, huge, massive, powerful males just hang back and they wait for their dinner to be brought to them. And when he said that, Carol looked at me <laughs> like I was responsible for all of those lions. But he said every once in a while. Every once in a while, one of these lionesses will tangle with something that they can't control. Every once in a while, they'll find uh, an animal, something, uh, they've taken on something that's too powerful to get down. It's too strong for them to handle by themselves. And so they let out this roar. They let out this cry for help. They know that they're in over their head and they can't keep this fight up much longer. And as soon as that big, powerful lion hears it, he gets up and he takes off running toward his bride. And that beast of an animal will get up and always run to her aid. And no matter what is happening, no matter what he is doing, he will always come to her side and he takes over the fight. In nature, either that lion is going to win or that lion is going to die and that prey would escape. 
But in nature, always one side's going to win and one side is going to lose. Every male lion that we saw there on the plains had deep, deep scars on their face and their body from numerous, numerous fights. Folks, we've been missing with sin for far too long. And if you think, if you think that you can control it by yourself, but you've been found too weak, and you know that you can't, I want you to know that the past is the past. And we have a God who, who is here and offers us forgiveness for any of our past sins. He's here. And forgiveness is available for anything that we've done in the past. All we have to do is, is turn to him and ask, acknowledge, and then repent. Repent means that we turn away and we walk away from the sin. We leave the battle for someone else. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, who is triumph. And Jesus has already triumphed over your temptation to sin. He has already triumphed over your pain and your suffering. He's already triumphed over your fear, and he's triumphed over your death. He has triumphed over the devil himself, and Jesus is the lion who will, who will retreat for nothing. In nature, that lion is either going to win or that lion is going to die. In spiritual warfare, the lion of Judah has already walked through hell and it couldn't even hold him. And when you call upon that God, when you call upon that Jesus to defend you, one side is still going to go down, but it's never going to be Jesus. Folks, the enemy is at the gate. The enemy is at the gate trying to get to you, but all you have to do is call upon the name of Jesus, and he is the one who comes running to your aid. And Jesus is here, and Jesus is available, and Jesus is listening for your cry. Let's pray together. Oh, Lion of Judah, our great and powerful King, this morning maybe we have learned that we are so weak, and sometimes we have treated life with this arrogance that we are above it all or that we can control it. But Lord, we, we know that we are weak in flesh. And we know, Lord, that we are, we can try really, really hard, but we are powerless against sin and temptation on our own. But we thank you, Lord, that we have the Lion of Judah, the Lion who will respond to our cry the lion who will take on the fight for us, the lion who never loses. 
And so, Lord, may we call upon your name today. And as we pray, Lord, maybe there's somebody here who has been dealing with that sin. Maybe it's been that secret sin for such a long time. You know in your heart, you know in your soul that you are ashamed of it and you want it to end, but you just seem so powerless against it. You are powerless against it, but God is not. This morning, Lord, may we find that freedom by giving that over to you. Lord, the writing is on the wall. The warning has been given, but you, you respond to us with grace and compassion and forgiveness and power to resist that temptation in the future. Lord, may we give it to you today. May we find that freedom in allowing our lion to do the fighting for us. And we thank you that you are already victorious. Jesus, we give you all of the praise and the glory and the honor today. And just as we sang this morning, we thank you, Jesus, that you are the ones to break the chains. Lord, we give you ourselves. We ask, Lord, that you would take over the fight and that you would help us. May we ask that with a bold faith this morning. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for taking it over for us. And we praise you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of us say together, amen.